everyone. Welcome back to an episode of The Scope. This is Raj. As always, I am with Jason Blevins, who's in... Where are you at again, man? I am in Dallas, in Texas. Well, first, my apologies for having to be in Texas. But <laughs> secondly, what are, you, what are you there for? I'm here for a uh, tech conference, uh, AT&T conference. Uh, that's fairly interesting. Um, a lot of good stuff. Um, uh, let's see. Thomas Friedman uh, opened everything up yesterday. So that was a really good talk. He wrote uh, The World is Flat. He's got um, just a really cool uh, view on on the world and the uh, you know the economics of the world. Michelle Obama spoke yesterday afternoon. Lenny Kravitz concert last night. Sting private concert tonight. So they're definitely pulling out all the stops for us. That's awesome, man! Sounds like a great time. Yeah, except I'm going to be at the uh, Mavericks and Orlando Magic game tonight because I just can't get enough coverage of uh nba basketball i guess of course not of course not it's, it's a true uh it's a true cr- chronic condition it's a chronic it's a syndrome what someone exactly. might say it's an outlet pass syndrome yeah i don't know who you're referring to but uh, i will see him tonight yeah exactly exactly <laughs> how's your week been otherwise man uh it's been pretty good been pretty good um, it's interesting. I haven't spent this much time in Dallas before. I was saying to someone that Dallas has a very small town feel just spread out over about 50 square miles. Yeah, fair enough. I'm, I've never been to Dallas. I've been to Houston, which did not have a small town feel to me, at least. They have a really, really, I mean, they have really cool things there. Like they have a huge NASA, a NASA NASA, yeah, NASA museum there right. because they have from back from some of their launches, which is pretty cool. But it's all very, very spread out, which I'm used to from LA. But it might even be more of a sprawl over there. Yeah, I mean, LA is spread out, but it's highly, it's pretty dense in the pockets Correct. where the people are. It's just separated by a lot of hills and mountains. This is like truly just like kind of like small town spread out that just doesn't end. No, it does not. But you tried it. any good food yet? Any good barbecue or anything? Yeah, I did. I had, uh, let's see, was it Monday, Sunday, I think? Sunday had uh, Lockhart barbecue. It was awesome. Had, okay, uh, okay. Brisket, half pound of brisket and a pound of ribs. So I think I'm going to try to do another one called, um, oh gosh, I forget the the, uh, the name of it, but it's like the number one rated in Dallas. So I think I'm going to try that. Oh, all right okay. i've actually heard of lockhart before i haven't been there i have a good friend who's in dallas so i need to go soon i've had like franklin's in austin i've had which is excellent yep definitely definitely a wait but worth it for the brisket and then i had yeah, a my few wife places. went to franklin's at like she got in line at like 6 a.m for franklin's yeah ours i think we got in around eight but it's pretty fun like they have lawn chairs they bring out beers so you're just chilling and the reason is because he only cooks this X amount the night before. And right. so once he's out, he's out, which is commonplace, right, for any barbecue. But he's just so popular, you have to get there earlier. 
Yeah, that's that's the problem with barbecue in general is as a business, it's terrible because at best it's sell everything. And at worst, you don't sell everything. And it's all very expensive, especially if you're doing beef barbecue. It's like, you know, you know what your limit on revenue potential is, but you don't know what your bottom is. And uh, you're committed to the same expenses either way. So tough, tough business to get into barbecue. You got to love it. It's not something you do for the money. I mean, absolutely not. There's and now it's such a thing where there's, there's so much more competition, and there's access to some of the kind of the ways to do it. Whereas before, it was something that was more passed down, more traditional. Right. So there's a lot more access, and so I mean, I've seen them spring up everywhere. LA has a few good barbecue places. The best pork I ever had was Kansas City, actually, a place called Route 66, which was excellent. So there's, you know, it's always fun. Memphis has good barbecue. I had Cornish game hen in Memphis. Did you go to Rendezvous in uh, Memphis? No, I was just, I was uh, passing through to Atlanta for one of my rotations. So I don't have really had that much time. Love love Memphis barbecue. But uh, Texas barbecue is probably my personal favorite just because when brisket or beef ribs are done right, there's just nothing better in the world. Those burnt ends, man. Yep. All right. Anyways, on the docket, enough food. Making me hungry right now. One thirty over here. On the docket today is we're going to go through, firstly, is Steph's injury, right? He has the, the fracture. He's out allegedly three months. Secondly, we're going to run through DeAndre Ayton and then John Collins' uh, suspensions for violating the substance abuse. Some, yeah. Is that what it's called? Substance abuse policy or anti- yeah, PED. I think it's just PED. Yeah, PED policy. And then thirdly, the last topic will be how having a deeper rotation is a boon for teams as you get into the tail end of the season and into the playoffs. So, yep. so first, starting with Steph's injury, he has, quote-unquote, what they call the fracture of his second, second metacarpal. So if you look at your hand, palm down, you look at your, if you have your pointer or index finger, the bone that goes from your wrist to the base of that finger, that's your second metacarpal. Now, we don't really know any information on what was fractured. You can, you can fracture the base, which is near the wrist, the neck, which is in between the wrist and the base of the finger, or the head, which is at the base of the actual finger. Depending on where you fracture it, it changes the potential surgery, or if you need surgery, and it changes the timelines. So the fact that he had surgery, my guess is that this is not my scope of expertise, but I I, I speak to, uh, I consult with an orthopedic surgeon who kind of helps fill me in with a lot of this stuff. If the bone is angulated, meaning it's at a certain angle, or the fracture led to rotation, in this case, Baines fell on his hand, and that's a lot of weight going on to that, that area. So it might have led to that displacement where you have to stabilize it through surgery. And the key thing, yeah. the key thing after surgery really is for Steph, you have to fight against hand stiffness in range of motion. And people are saying it's a non-shooting hand. In this case, that's actually relatively important because having a stiff offhand is not as much of a deficit as having a stiff shooting and main dribble primary hand. <coughs> but yeah, the, the, the key thing is, and Jason, you fill me in, when you saw three months, what did you first think? 
as a return timeline. Not that you have any background. Uh, I'm just wondering I, what your reaction I was, was. I was sure they would, I was pretty sure they would rush him back as soon as possible. Just, you know, just make sure they could squeeze him back in, hurt or not, get him, get him back in there just to win as many possible games as they could. Um, pretty clear to me that it was going to be, um, you know, health, long-term health be damned. Let's get him back and try to push for the uh, playoffs. Oh, really? Uh with this no, Warriors it's a team? Joke. Okay. <laughs> Completely. Completely joke. All right, all right, all right. You got me there. You got me. I was tripping for a No, I think <laughs> I think they'll be patient. Um, you know, it it is being the offhand, um, it is the kind of injury that he might just go stir crazy and, and want to come back and, and play some games. Um so I, I'm not gonna go and say they're gonna shut him down for the for the season. I think it'll be really up to him. I think I've, I think I've had that break in the hand where, you know, still, but it, again, it's on my, it's on my offhand. I'm, I'm left-handed. So it's on my right hand and I definitely cannot pull my uh, uh, index finger and middle finger back very far without significant pain. But there are very few things that you have to do in life that that, that really matters. So, you know, three months is probably like, um, very conservative he could probably play basketball and dribble a basketball sooner than that I just don't see any reason why the why they would rush him uh to do that unless he's really just going stir crazy no exactly I mean I think they might have learned a little bit from the Katie situation in terms of putting a timetable out there and then having people wonder you know what that's going on so you just give a expanded timetable of three months even though the injury, based on my understanding, takes like usually typically an average, not average, like max eight weeks really to come back from. So it's like, what? But why put that pressure on Steph? Why not be conservative? Even the way that they're handling like D'Angelo's injury right now, yeah, yeah, like that mild ankle sprain, and he, he's missing. I mean, they're actually handling it pretty well. But I've seen them rush guys back much quicker if they needed to. Whereas now they're being much more conservative, which just made sense for them moving forward because you you want to have these guys ready for next year. This is always going to be a transition year for them. Like if they had a shot at the playoffs when Clay came back, sure, great. But it's like, why not just take your time, bring Steph back yep. closer to when Clay gets back, right? Show fans there that there is a chance for next year. Have them re up their season tickets those expensive Chase Center tickets, and then move into next year, right? And so it, it definitely, it, like you said, very, very conservative timetable, but it doesn't make sense not to. Right. And I think they can sell their their fans who have, uh, you know, a lot of money and, and love fresh ideas. I'm sure they'll, they will sell the concept of, bringing along young guys, developing young guys, punting one season, you know. Uh, I, I said, I joked last week that, um, you know, Philly had the process and uh, Golden State has gone full algorithm. So <laughs> yeah. I'm sure they'll lean into that sort of, that sort of uh, intellectualizing the, uh, the approach. And, uh, you know, it's a good franchise. It's a well-run organization. They're patient. They've got tons of money. And uh, it might be a good way for them to sort of 
clear up uh, some of their luxury tax issues. You know, they were they were really at the apron and really at the uh, the full repeater tax level. So this this is probably they could they could. I'm not saying they they wanted all this to happen, but I'm sure they can uh, make the best of this situation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it also coming off five straight years of long winded seasons and playoffs, it's going to be helpful. Obviously you don't ever want to be hurt at the least. It's going to take some of that wear off their bodies. Right. And in Steph's case, it's his wrist is not his lower body. So he'll be able to at least rest up and come back a little fresher. I mean, we've seen what it has done. It's helped LeBron a lot having that ability to have more time off and rebuild yourself. Because these seasons definitely, I mean, they wear the hell out of you, man. And so that brings us to our next topic, which is going to be our third topic, but that segue was too good, was having, you know, depth in your rotation to be able to mitigate against some of those factors now, Jason watches and follows a team that has no depth on the back end with the Sixers. So, you know, what are your expectations moving forward for, with, with this team? How they're going to how is uh, Coach Brown work around that? Ooh, that's tough saying they have no depth. Um, I think that they have limited scoring and creation deep on their bench. So, I I think that what um what that team is doing is they're running a shorter bench uh certainly the first four or five games of the year uh they have expanded a little bit uh howell netto got much more playing time the other night um and i would expect to see them go to more of a 10 or 11 man bench as they as they gain some chemistry, I think early in the season they were trying to learn to play with each other, to build cohesion, uh, bring in new guys, and I think that's that makes sense. But ultimately, I think you're just going to have to give guys deep on the bench really clear roles um, and trust that the other team is not going to scout them for their weaknesses and really exploit what they can't do well. And that, that really is what coaching is about, right? Putting putting people that are not superstar all around um, players in a position to do what they can do well and avoid the things that they don't do well. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So maybe I just wasn't informed as well as I thought I was about the Sixers bench. I mean, I have seen Neto. I've seen, uh, what's his name? Kirkmaz. Is that how you pronounce it? Kirkmaz. He's been playing relatively well, but I think, when we had first yeah, shooting forty percent three, he's uh, he was not counted on to be a top eight rotation player heading into the season. But right. they did shoot him, and he he is not afraid to shoot. Um, he's also played a lot of international basketball, even though he's only twenty two. So he is someone that um, you know, as long as other people are uh, other teams aren't going to hunt him on the defensive end, he can. He can at times make good, quick decisions and knock down shots, and that's that's what you need from elite bench guys. Right? Wasn't he on the brink of like going back to Europe, something like this in the offseason? Oh, for sure, he was. Oh, absolutely. I so in Toronto during the during the playoffs, I was talking with him, 
And, I mean, we were just casually having a conversation in the locker room, and we didn't even talk about the series because we both knew he wasn't going to play in the series, mm-hmm. and his his contract was up. There was virtually no chance he was coming back. So we really just talked about FIBA and what he was looking forward to as far as FIBA and um, and that tournament. Like, we just didn't even bother talking about, like, next NBA team or coming back to Philadelphia that that wasn't even in his mind. Um, and quite frankly, I don't think many people in Philadelphia expected him back. So he, um, he took one more shot at it and he has gotten himself in much better shape than he was last year. He, he has had some injury problems that affected his ability to be in NBA level strength and condition. Um, so he's been better in that regard. He worked a lot during training camp on uh, playing through contact. I mean, every day in training camp, you would see him after after practice working with um, coaches on contact through coming off of screens. So there was no clean clean looks, and I think those that combination of factors has helped him be um, be a useful role player so far. And I did not expect to spend the this much time talking about for a conference <laughs> Well, you never know what you're going to get over here on the, on the scope, man. You just never know. I think it's always interesting to go into topics that may not be uh, explored yeah. in other, yeah. other corners of this internet universe. So, But those are the guys you, you want on your bench, right? They, they can do one thing and you hope they can do them well enough to overcome any other things. It's not the kind of person that you'd say, oh, this guy in five years, he's going to be an all-star. You know, it's, it's like a lot of things would have to go right for that to happen. But, but the first thing for a young player to do to make it in the NBA and become a career professional is to have the one elite skill yep. – and um, and develop that to the point where they can actually showcase it in in games, and then ultimately be a playoff player. Going back to the Warriors, I saw Bob Myers talk at at Sloan in March, and he talked about there there are regular season players, and there are playoff players, and not everyone can play. Not everyone in the NBA can play in the playoffs, and that's absolutely true. Oh yeah, abs- abs- absolutely true. And so, I mean. And that goes for whether it's, you know, a star player or not. We've seen guys like DeRozan, who's, you would think, based on his ability, you can say, oh, he's a playoff player, but he struggles mightily in the playoffs, right? Because his skill set, especially in today's NBA, where spacing is so vital, and then you have defenses that really clamp down in the half court, that really limits his ability in the postseason. And even Lowry, to an extent, was like that as well yeah. and then of course playing you know playing off a true superstar like Kawhi is always helpful yeah and going back to the point the original point though is that you know you don't have to be a playoff caliber player to be useful to a playoff team maybe your value from that sort of ninth man to 14th man is being playable enough in the regular season to allow your starters to not grind themselves into dust during the regular season so that they're preserved enough to be 
the full version of themselves come playoff time. Yeah, no, exactly. I was actually in the shower this morning thinking about how I would – thinking about a lot of things, but thinking about this in particular, <laughs> I was thinking, let's say you have whatever, player X, he's one of your main guys. Let's say he typically plays about 33 minutes, right? Let's say now with a deeper rotation, he can play only 30 minutes. You're reducing the minute load per game by three minutes. You multiply that by 80. Let's say he missed a couple games. That's three, right? And now you're at about 240 minutes. So if this player on average averages about now 30 minutes, you divide that. And so you're talking about, you know, six, seven, eight games in terms of minute load that you're able to reduce from that person's season. Yeah, absolutely. And then on the other side is uh, even if they, um, even if you don't necessarily reduce their minute load, if you have enough guys that are good defenders and they allow your star to take possessions off maybe and maybe play soft zone on the defensive end, then that can preserve them in other ways to really allow them to focus on, on putting pressure on the opposing team on the offensive end. Um, so there are a lot of ways that players can contribute, role players can contribute to help their stars be fully actualized. Right. You mean like you know, like that late career Kobe defense? <laughs> the f- the defense. <laughs> yeah, the, the free safety. I'm not sure what he's playing for. Six, seven, free safety. Yeah, yeah exactly. No, and not uh, on this, on the flip side, on the offensive end as well, if you can let your star players not have to play in those high usage, high leverage areas, so not having to handle the ball as much, be able to take more spot up shots, be able to attack a rotating defense, which is far easier than having to do everything off off the dribble and create everything yourself. I think we've talked about it before. Another example with that with the theme here is Steph because. Early on in his career, uh, the Warriors had, not early on, but when they became a contending team, they had Jared Jack to handle a lot of those duties. And then he signed with the Nets. And then Steph, that following year, had a bunch of wear and tear because he had to initiate everything. And then they went and got Sean Livingston to help him out with that, which then really helps him prolong his stamina within that season and then into the playoffs as well. And then, of course, having KD yeah. there just prolongs everyone because he can get whatever shot he wants at whatever time. Yeah, and it sounds a little counterintuitive, but I think offense is much more exhausting than defense in general. Um, you'd think that, you know, in the NFL, it's certainly not that way, but you'd think that chasing someone around would be more exhausting. But, you know, to be a high-usage player, player with the ball in your hands and and really be have to lock in and try to break down someone and drive to the pain um that's pretty exhausting stuff oh absolutely being the primary creator is uh extremely exhausting which is what makes kind of lebron's longevity even more incredible considering he's been that his entire career and so but i think that's also why he's been looking for someone to help him whether it was Kyrie. In Cleveland, he let him be played more off the ball. And now he is able to use AD to that extent to just take some breaks offensively. Let someone else do all the dirty work. Yeah. Speaking of but, dirty. So, oh, that's my segue, man. Uh, speaking of dirty. I love it. Speaking of dirty, DeAndre Ayton and, and John Collins got caught 
with uh, PEDs. So that was my segue, man. But what did you? I don't want to. Yeah, it's great. No, I, I, I was gonna, I, I was gonna do the same thing. I think that you talk about LeBron and his ability to preserve himself. It's pretty surprising that Collins and Aiton, two really young guys, early in their career, would have been caught. Um, now, listen, it might just be a case of them getting bad advice from a, a non-professional and getting the wrong thing at GNC and it, you know, it had something in there. But if they, if this was intentional, then that's kind of surprising for, for players that age. You would really think it would be guys in their, in their, you know, late prime uh, trying to preserve their bodies. So why would a 22, 23-year-old player want to, or 20-year-old or player in, in the case of Aiden, want to take something like this? Well, it's an interesting question. It's always hard to say why. I mean, I, the question is always, why is he taking it, right? With the, with, so Aiden was, had, a, had a diuretic, which is a masking agent typically. That's why it's banned. It masks the use of steroids. It helps you clean it out of your system, from my understanding. Again, this is not within my scope, but stuff I asked around about. And the most interesting part, actually, with that, it's usually only in your system for like one or two days. So either the NBA, it's either it was just random chance, it is random testing, or the NBA got tipped off that he was doing something and then tested him. So, yeah, which is, I wonder if it was just pot. Maybe maybe they're just trying to like hide the fact that they smoke pot. I re- honestly, I yeah, it, I'm I'm not really sure with Aiton. It's so hard to say what it is in this regard, especially nowadays where I mean you have so much more access to understand what exactly these things are, what you can or can't do. You have all these resources. So, and then the other problem is there's really there's really no transparency every player says the same thing right after they took they took it they say oh i didn't i didn't know it was in some you know whatever some other product and then it happened to contaminate my my own thing so we never truly hear what it is in john collins case he actually had he had a hg growth hormone releasing peptide too and so which is essentially hgh which can oftentimes be used for recovery, for performance as well. I don't, I'm not sure. I just don't know enough about it, to be honest, to really comment on why they'd be using it. It's wild. Um, yeah. It's just, I, again, if you're John Collins and, and maybe you're undersized for your position, you're trying to get stronger, you're trying to compete, um, you know, it's very talented um, young player, but let's face it, he's undersized for the position that he naturally fits at. So maybe that's a maybe that's a part of it. I I'd probably just chalk it up to you know how dumb all of us were at that age, you know, and how we make um, you know we're prone to make dumb decisions at that age. A lot going on as far as. Uh, you know, brain chemistry and body chemistry that could lead us to uh, irrational decisions. Yeah, I mean, the question always with these sorts of things is, do they do it on someone else's advice or of their own volition, right? And so that's yeah. the question. So if you have an expert who's now 
kind of giving you advice on what to do, what not to do. And make no mistake, this happens all the time, right? The NBA, every league, everyone's looking for that edge, how to get that edge legally. So you're going to have individuals who are always on that kind of on that cutting edge, pushing the limit a little bit. And that's why you always have leads where they're updating their policies of what they're testing for. So the question just becomes, like you said, was it just, um, you know, two young guys in males, your, uh, your frontal lobe doesn't fully develop till you're 25 frontal lobe is responsible for your high level executive decision-making. It's what, it's what gets shut off when you're drinking alcohol. And so, Maybe it was just a stupid decision, or maybe they were giving bad advice. Who knows? I, I don't. In the end, it, it just hurts their team, especially for two teams who've actually looked pretty dang good as well. Especially the Suns, yep. to be honest. Well, actually, the Hawks as well. Even without Trey, with I mean, without Trey, of course, you don't want to expect them to do that great, considering how much pressure he puts on defenses. But the Suns have looked really quite good, and shockingly, on both ends of the floor, quickly. I think when you really look at their roster, it's sneaky. It is. It is. It just fits together. If you really just look at the players and you say, "Oh, I see how, I see how that front line um, can really enable Booker to do what Booker does well." So, yep. It's an. It it is a nice little job they did putting the roster together. They really did. yeah, and, it's uh, impressive. And the Hawks, Trey Young is just a, a magician, and uh, you saw what he did that highlight against LaMarcus Aldridge <laughs> last night. Just you know, just so fun to watch. He really is. And what I've been impressed about, we talked about this last week, is about, or maybe we did or did, I can't remember, is, is how quickly Monty Williams has implemented some of his principles. I don't. Never mind. We didn't talk about this, but is how quickly Monty Williams has implemented especially his offense into that Suns team. They're running some really, really good actions there for their player. It helped for their players. It helps to have Rubio there who can orchestrate. And also on, yeah. I mean, you've seen Dario. He's, he's a really heady player as well. And so oh, he yeah. understands oh, yeah. spacing extremely well. So does book. And then book puts so much pressure on a defense as well. But I've been impressed with how quickly they've really taken Tamani's system and I think at the same time, I've seen Booker play defense for the first time in his career. And that's what really shows you that environment makes such a big difference when it comes to a player's defensive potential. Look, everyone in the league, in the NBA, has the assets to play defense. It's it's effort and it's preparation. That's the two main tenets of defense. It's a matter of want. And, and wingspan. I mean, wingspan has become a huge factor. Right, absolutely. So in terms of effectiveness, yes, but it isn't in terms of general. You can play a good baseline level of defense in the NBA. Like guys like Steph and JJ play pretty good defense just based on preparation and moving their feet. Any player can do that if they put the effort in. And that's what makes guys like Harden's defense, you know, so frustrating to watch at times. You have to be locked in mentally first to be able to anticipate what the other player. You get. You have to really be paying attention to what the other pe- uh, the other player is trying to do, and that way you don't get caught flat-footed. And you can get away with maybe not being the greatest athlete if you're if you're 
in rhythm, stepping with them, seeing what they're trying to do. If you are completely disengaged on that, on that side mentally, it doesn't matter your physical tools. You're just, you know, they're, they're, the NBA is littered with huge prospect big men who just were half a step late and completely washed out of the league. Right, especially off the ball. You have to always have that engagement. It's one thing if, you're, if your guy has the ball, okay, you know, you're going to be engaged because you know everyone's looking at you as well. The real question when, you, when I watch defense, okay, what's this individual's positioning like off the ball? What's the communication level like? Like you see a guy for us with – there's a huge night and day comparison with the Lakers. It's JaVale McGee and Dwight Howard when it comes to those aspects, right? JaVale, he often finds himself out of position, which he's able to make up for with his athleticism. But you have a guy like Dwight who's not as athletic, but his defensive recognition and anticipation and and his timing on his shot blocking and and his hand speed, I I forgot this guy was a two-time defensive player of the year. And, and now I'm seeing oh, it yeah. two or three times. I'm like that. But, and now, you, I mean, people forgot how good he was defensively. And he's, he's been incredible with his reading of the game. Yeah. It was all about from the neck up with, with him. Always uh, was. Absolutely. Uh, by the way, going back to the, back to the Warriors, you know, the Warriors were tanking when they signed um, Marquise Chris, because he is probably the lowest, defensive play recognition player in the NBA. He just doesn't care, doesn't pay attention. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's tough for them. All the physical tools. Oh, he does. But considering they're capped out with the D'Lo trade, uh, they kind of just, they have to kind of grasp at straws a little bit. Yeah, you you hope you can turn a guy like that, teach him to care. Willie Cauley-Stein also, you know, these are are reclamation projects that... um, have the physical tools and you just hope that they uh i mean you saw what they did with javel mcgee for for a couple of years they just turned him into a useful player when no one else could no exactly again it speaks back to how much an environment influences a player and i've heard multiple people say this players who said i think i've actually it was more more nfl wise it was the the most recent example was josh rosen in the nfl about you have a kid who's, who's quite talented, then you place him into the Cardinal organization that's, you know, who are kind of look, looking for a new coach when he got there with no O-line. Now you place him in the Dolphins organization, but somehow people want to make a judgment on how good of a quarterback he is, even though he's been in two terrible environments, right? And so you see that all the time where you have guys who are just placed into the wrong situation, especially early on in their career. And then unfortunately in professional sports, once you kind of have this stigma associated with you, you often don't get that chance again to, to wash that off. Yeah. By the way, um, a few of the surprises in the NBA so far, Atlanta Hawks, Phoenix Suns, and the Charlotte Hornets, all head coaches from the Brett Brown or pop Mm -hmm. coaching tree, Mm -hmm. um, all doing a hell of a job. You have to credit their coaches. Um, these, uh, these, these head coaches are, are putting together exactly like you said, that environment where 
people can um, can thrive and focus and block out the nonsense. Oh yeah. So that that is why it's so surprising that Collins and Aiden would have gotten caught up in the nonsense. But maybe <laughs> you said maybe someone knew and was paying attention. Uh, I'm not no conspiracy theory, but maybe this was a wake up call that uh, the organizations felt they needed to uh, wake these guys up. Yeah, who knows? I mean, honestly, we never really know what goes on behind the scenes, right? It's like we know about 10%. There's so much other stuff. There's stuff that I know of that I can't really say that goes on behind in, behind the scenes. And it stays there for and for good reason. So there's always yep, oftentimes there's more reason than there is just pure coincidence and rhyme. And one last point, I just want to make a parallel between what you said about, to me, Pop's coaching tree is only rivaled by Bill Walsh's coaching tree, which was Bill Walsh down to Holmgren, down to Andy Reid, yeah. uh, Peterson. Mm-hmm. The one outlier there, I think, was Marty Mortenweg, who, not a great head coach, but a good coordinator. I'll, oh, I'll yeah. make that caveat. ton of good coordinators came out of there, too. Not all of them made uh, head coaches, but there was a certain principles that I do think have limited those teams um, upside, even though Peterson got a, a um, got a Super Bowl. I don't know how many Bill Walsh people have won Super Bowls in the last 20 years, but absolutely a fantastic uh, tree. Yeah, and some you know some coaches know how to teach their assistants kind of approach and how to coach and those aspects and, you know, be adaptable. And then on the other hand, you have Phil Jackson and his coaching tree, <laughs> which is just, it's, it's a stump really. It's just Phil. And then the branches have all fallen off. So. Well, he's more of a guru than a coach. I would argue. Yeah. And I think, I don't think he was ever able to really teach his coaches how to coach. It was, here's the triangle. But I think with what made Phil really special was his 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 ability to relate to each player and understand what makes them tick, and then understand how to get the best out of them. But how right. you know it's not easy to teach that to another person. It's not. It absolutely is not. It's like you know why did Michael Jordan not become a coach? You cannot teach someone to become Michael Jordan. That's not a coachable trait. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's just not a thing. Anyways, I think all right. we all done? Yeah, I'm good. All right, excellent. So, Get over to the arena. Absolutely. So uh, thanks for joining us once again. Again, my name is Raj. You can find me on Instagram, all social media, Twitter, Instagram. I have a YouTube channel that does in-depth analysis. Uh, the, the handle is... 3CB performance, 3 Charlie Beta performance, and Jason, yourself? Um, on Twitter, Jay Blevins MBA, and you can find my writings, which is is not in-depth uh, analysis, um, on thepaintedlines.com. Everyone else on the site does good analysis. My analysis is, is mediocre at best. Yeah, I'd agree with that. <laughs> there you go. All right. Catch you all next week.
quick add-on to tonight's pod is regarding Ben Simmons' shoulder injury that he suffered against the Utah Jazz. The team said that he has a mild injury joint sprain to his AC joint, which is the acromioclavicular joint near the shoulder. To understand where that is, if you follow your clavicle up towards your shoulder with your hand, keep going, keep going, you'll feel a little bump at the top. That's your acromion. That is actually part of your shoulder blade or scapula, but it's also critical for shoulder movement. So the joint in between those two has a ligament called your AC ligament or acromioclavicular ligament. And when it takes direct impact, impact, excuse me, like Ben Simmons did today when he was putting his shoulder down, it can get damaged. In this case, it's most likely a mild grade one sprain. You could think of a sprain of this ligament like you would a sprain of uh, ankle ligament. Typically here, you'll see a return to play in under two weeks. I've also seen players play through it, but I'd expect the Sixers to be conservative considering their pedal aspirations moving forward. <laughs>